0: Good morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Ezra. We're going to be looking at Ezra chapters 3 and 4 today. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you and you would like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you, probably somewhere nearby you can grab. And if you don't know where to find stuff in the Bible, don't worry. Uh, Nobody else here knows where to find Ezra either. So, It's going to be on page 390 of the Bibles that are there in the chair rack in front of you. Uh, A couple things before we started, before we get started today. One is, uh, I'm a little disappointed, not one of you dressed up today. I said that to uh, the first service, no costumes today. I was expecting to see somebody in a costume, and nobody has showed up in a costume. So, there's always next year, Uh, surprise me. The other thing that I uh, wanted to uh, just point out to you is we please keep uh, Terry Braun in prayer. Um, many of you know Terry Braun, um, and he has been in the hospital uh, this this weekend. I see Debbie's here. Uh, is he still in the hospital? Yeah. He is. Okay. So he's had all kinds of scans and tests and things with some physical problems that he's and having with maybe, his, maybe related to his liver or his gallbladder, um, he's gotten some, some clears on some of that stuff, but it's my understanding they're still awaiting uh, information on that. So please do uh, pray for him and pray for Debbie. He is, if his texts are any indication, uh, still in reasonably good spirits. <laughs> um, but please do uh, pray for him and them as they have these burdens to bear. All right. It should be in Ezra 3. If you want to be there, we'll be looking at both Ezra 3 and 4 today. Most of us have had the experience of going on a road trip, I would assume. And road trips uh, at the beginning are always full of promise. Note I said at the beginning. But when you're going on a road trip, you might stop at a fine establishment like Bucky's. uh, One of my favorite places to stop and six hours later, once you've made it through the line, uh, you can get out with beef jerky. They've got these uh, roasted like walnuts and pecans that are that have sugar on them, and I, I could just eat a barrel of them. But they only sell them in those little 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 papers, so you need several of them. But you get your drink, you get that. You're you're going down the road. Maybe the windows are down. You got music playing on your phone. Everybody is singing along, and this road trip feels like it is going to be a fantastic time. Most people now, when they're going on a road trip, uh, and especially me because I can't find my way anywhere, have their phones out, attached to the dashboard somehow, and you've got a a map up there. And as you're progressing through this trip... There is a a countdown timer, usually in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen, and that that timer is supposed to be green, and that number of how many hours it's going to take you to get to your destination is shrinking, and it feels good every once in a while to look down and see that another hour has gotten chopped off of that trip, but something terrible happens sometimes. Sometimes you look down, and that... Green number has turned yellow. And then you look at it a few minutes later and it's turned red. And it gives you a little message that says there are slowdowns ahead. And then it gives you another message that says there are no alternate routes. You are in the middle of nowhere. This is the only road that can get you there. And then you finally hit it. And you're sitting in bumper to bumper, stop and go traffic for an hour, hoping that you got enough gas at Bucky's to get you through whatever it is that's happening in front of you. We all probably also know that feeling of relief as you keep looking ahead and you keep seeing, okay, the slowdown it's, it's what was so, so many minutes, it's now five minutes and then three minutes. you can see there's a little bit of yellow up ahead. And you start to move forward and you get to 20 miles an hour and 30 miles an hour and then you hit 50 and 60 and now all of a sudden you're up at highway speed, everything is going great, you go up over the hill and what greets you when you go up over that hill at full speed? A sea of brake lights in front of you because there is another stop. Life can be like that sometimes, can't it? Just when you think you've gotten going, just when you think, okay, that setback, that trial is behind me. We're moving forward now. Everything's gonna be going our way. And then all of a sudden, you get over the hill and there's a bunch of brake lights ahead and you find yourself Stopped again. Well, that's what we're going to see with Israel today in the chapters of Scripture that we are going to be look, looking at together. They have been on the right track now. They have been going the right direction, but they are going to experience a setback. They are going to hit a snag. Now, for those of you who weren't here with us two weeks ago where we left off with them to just give you a very brief overview is that the nation of Israel has been warned over and over again by God that they are going to be taken captive by another nation if they do not repent their ways and follow him. That, that warning eventually comes true and the kingdom of Babylon comes. And Babylon comes, destroys Jerusalem, uh, uh, takes the temple to the ground, burns the whole thing, and takes a bunch of people out of Jerusalem into Babylon where they are going to live in exile. But what we saw in the last couple uh, last or 2 weeks ago in chapters 1 and 2, we saw the miraculous but providential intervention of God because Babylon falls out of power, the Persian empire comes into play, and Persia has a different foreign policy than the Babylonian empire. Whereas the Babylonians messed up all your stuff and moved you off to another place, the Persian foreign policy was to let people stay in their lands and even to help them in rebuilding some of their sacred sites. And so the Bible picks their story up in Ezra chapter 1 with a decree from King Cyrus that whoever wants, whoever's living in exile in Babylon, whoever wants is going to be allowed to go back to the land. They're going to be able to go back to their homeland. They're going to be able to rebuild uh, the temple in Jerusalem. And so when we finished with them in chapter two, they were home, they had taken up an offering, they had settled some of the surrounding villages and they were ready to go. So chapter three, where we're gonna pick up today in verse three tells us this, their first project. Ezra chapter three, verse three, the word of God says this, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of The land's. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now, I want you to notice something from what we just read. Okay, the, the first project that they choose to tackle is the rebuilding of the altar. But the Bible also tells us that as they tackle this first rebuilding project, there is fear on them because of the peoples of the lands, and one of the things that we've got to remember is that Jerusalem and the surrounding areas wasn't just laying dormant the whole time. The whole time they're gone, there are other people living there. There are other people doing, do, uh, taking up residence there. Um, it, hasn't, it hasn't been a, a, whole, a ghost t- town the whole time. They're gone. And so you would think if you were afraid, the people around you, I think if I'm choosing the building projects that I'm going to start with, I might start with a security project. We want to get to the altar. We want to get to the temple. But let's get some protection going. Let's build the walls first. Let's get some fortifications. Let's make sure we're taken care of and safe and protected before we start on these other things. But this Verse gives us a window into their mindset. Their priority in the rebuilding project is not their security. Their priority is worship. They have not been able to worship their God the way he has prescribed for them for decades. So they put themselves in his hands. They entrust their security to God and they begin this project of rebuilding The altar, so that the worship of the one true God could finally be restored. Then, when the altar is rebuilt, verse 6 tells us that they began their next building project. And their next building project is laying the foundations of the temple. If we were going to use contemporary terms to describe what they were going to do, if you're going to build something like we're trying to do, then one of the first things that you've got to do is lay the slab. Before you can build any kind of structure, you've got to get a slab down, so you give yourself a foundation on which you can build, and that's what they need to do. They need to lay the slab. They need to rebuild their foundations, and so they turn to that project next. The Bible tells us that when they get the foundation of this temple complete, they have this beautiful dedication service. And let's read a little bit about that dedication service beginning in verse 10. Ezra 3:10 And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David king of Israel and they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. So many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now, we just read a few verses there describing this, this dedication and this celebration, but let me ask you the question, was there anything subdued about it? There's nothing subdued about the way they celebrated the foundation of the temple being laid. I didn't take the time to count it, but the word shout is used a bunch of times, right? The people are shouting with a great shout. There, is, there are cymbals, there are trumpets, there's stuff going on. And one of the uh, interesting things here is the role of music in their celebration. They're drawing on their rich history of the Psalms of David, the way David uh, laid out worship. The sons of Asaph are leading them in music. And the Bible says that they sing responsively. And we do that too. Just a couple weeks ago, we were singing a song together called, Is He Worthy? And what, happ- what is the unique thing about that song? Well, the people who are standing up here sing a question to those of us who are sitting in the audience. And those of us who are sitting in the audience sing the answer back. That is responsive singing. That is singing responsively. And though there's only one song in our repertoire that we sing like that, that actually has a very rich biblical background of God's people singing back and forth. To themselves. Well, what is the song that they sing? What is the thankful song that God's people sing? Well, verse 11 tells us, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Why? What were they singing? For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. They're rejoicing in the fact that God had not turned his back on his people. They were rejoicing in the fact that God had not forgotten them. They were rejoicing in the fact that God had no longer decided that they were no longer worthy of his love. Though he had chastised them as he had promised, he had also restored them as he had promised. Now there's an interesting feature, there's all kinds of interesting things in the text that I I don't always have the time to bring out, but there's an interesting thing that's being done here that is similar to something that we saw last week, remember, or not last week, but two weeks ago. Remember two weeks ago I told you that the author of Ezra and Nehemiah, remember those were originally one book, they're divided in our Bibles and we're just going to study the book of Ezra, but Ezra and Nehemiah were originally probably one book. And you might remember, I said a couple of weeks ago, that the author does some things, uses some language to evoke or remind us of other things in the biblical story. And there's one particular event in Israel's history that the author wanted to evoke by the language that he used in chapters 1 and 2. Do you remember what that was? It was the Exodus, He intentionally uses language that any person who's familiar with the Bible, any person living in that day who is reading this, they would be reading that language and immediately be thinking, oh, I've heard this before. This is language that sounds familiar to me. Well, We saw that he evokes language of the Exodus in in chapters 1 and 2. This time, we're going to see him evoke language from the uh, uh, dedication of Solomon's temple. He's going to use language that the readers are going to say, hey, that that sounds like this thing that happened in our history. And he's going to do it in a few ways. One of the ways he does it is he talks about the timbers The beams that are gonna be brought in to use in the building process, he says that they're purchased from Lebanon and they're brought in through the coastal cities of Tyre and Sidon. Well, that's exactly what Solomon did. They bought bought cedar from Lebanon and they had it shipped in via via Tyre and Sidon. Another interesting feature that we might miss is that the author gives us the date when they started the, the, the Temple Foundation Rebuilding Project. It was in the second month. Well, it just so happens that Solomon began building his temple in the second month. Furthermore, when Solomon's temple is built, they celebrate it by singing a song responsibly. Did I say responsibly? I'm sure they did it responsibly. But they sing the song responsively and take a wild guess about what song they sing. They sing the exact song that's found here in our text. There's just subtle ways that the author is drawing connections points so that we can see this, oh this is like that. God's doing here what he was doing there. Whereas that last thing was, uh, the, w- whereas what we saw in chapters one and two was a new exodus, what we're seeing here is a new establishment of the temple. And of course, the, the, the Bible tells us several times in those verses that, there's, that the people are shouting aloud with a great shout, with joy, that these exiles would be allowed to return and rebuild the altar and rebuild the foundation of the temple. But there are some older folks here who have a different reaction. The Bible tells us that there were some Some of the older folks had actually been in Jerusalem when they'd gotten kicked out. So as they're standing on this sacred site, as they're seeing this great act of God's goodness and of his steadfast love, as they're seeing this happen, they're still looking at rubble. They're still looking at a city without walls, They're still looking at a place that has been absolutely decimated and as they're thanking God for what He's allowed them to do, they are looking at these temple foundations and they are noticing that this temple is not going to be as grand as the one Solomon built. Solomon's temple was over the top. It was fantastic in every way and there are some major differences between this temple that's going to be built and the original one. Not only is this temple not going to be quite so grand, but at the original temple dedication, the Bible tells us that the Ark of the Covenant is brought in. That was David, King David's big thing. He wanted to have a place for the Ark to be put. And the Ark is brought in in ceremony into the temple that Solomon builds. Well, there's, there's no Ark this time. The Bible tells us that when Solomon dedicates the temple fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifices. No such thing happens on this occasion. The Bible tells us that when Solomon's temple is dedicated, God's glory fills this magnificent structure like a cloud. I mean, this is a a a once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience to see what happens at Solomon's dedication. But there's no cloud of glory here. When Solomon builds and dedicates the temple, the the kingdom is really at its high point. These older folks, these senior citizens, the people who get the discount at Denny's, these people are sitting here looking at this and they're realizing that the only reason they are building this temple is because they have been allowed to. Yes, they've been returned to their homeland. And yes, it is a wonderful thing. But there are some key differences. They are still under the thumb of their captors. They are only allowed to do what the empire says that they are allowed to uh, to do. And so some of the older folks weep and the weeping is so loud to go along with the shouting that you almost can't tell the difference between the two, we're told. But after all these years of sitting in traffic, they're finally getting up to highway speed. Things are moving forward again. The altar's been built, the temple foundation has been laid, and they are on the move. The next chapter, chapter 4, is going to tell us that there are brake lights ahead. Look with me at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, when you hear this offer for help, it sounds like Israel's getting a little salty with them. You know, here you have these people who have said, hey, we're here. We're worshiping God with you. Let us help. And they're like, no thanks. I don't want that at all. And that might leave us scratching our heads a little bit. You've got people that are worshiping God. They're offering to help. Why do they take that response? Why do they seem to speak to them so strongly? And there's a clue for us in the text, which is not that hard to uncover, but the clue is in the first verse. These people are introduced to us as what? Adversaries. These people are introduced as the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. And as there is with everything, there's a story there. And that story is hinted to us because they reference the king of Assyria who had brought them there. So what in the world are they talking about? Well, if I can give it to you very briefly 2 Kings chapter 17 tells us that Assyria, who had been in power, won't go into back, back into all that, but Assyria had been in power. Assyria had resettled some of these surrounding areas, including Samaria, with other people and as... Assyria has resettled this area this is uh, referring to the northern kingdom which fell before the southern kingdom and I know I'm known giving you a lot of information so you don't have to worry about all that stuff but there's another conquer uh, conquering assyria was involved they resettle some of this area and they get a report back that's weird It's, the Bible tells us about it there in uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, but the report that comes back to the Assyrian king is, there's a lot of people in that area that are getting attacked by lions. As we're comparing our uh, lion data attacks from past years, there is a sharp increase in the lion activity in this area. People are getting attacked and killed by lions, Now remember, people in this time period think of deities as localized. So a god of a particular nation is a god of a particular area. That god has a kind of like a radius that he can do. And he's not allowed to do outside that radius. And so people often thought of the one true God, not realizing that the true God is not bound by geography. He is omnipresent and uh, omniscient. He is everywhere and knows everything and is all-powerful. But they don't realize that. And so the Assyrian king says, huh, I wonder if we've angered the God of the area with all these lion attacks. Tell you what I'll do. I'm going to send you a priest, a Jewish priest, to teach you the proper worship of God so hopefully we can bring the lion attack thing down. The Bible says this. (laughs) So, I don't know who drew the short straw, but somebody gets to go back, and he does that. He teaches people God's ways. And the Bible tells us, though, that He teaches the people God's ways. They're thankful for it, but they combine that practice with everything else they're already doing. So these people are not worshiping the true God alone. They are adding those practices of worship of the Lord with their other gods. We call that syncretism, putting together various values and worship practices together. So, this explains why the exiles who have returned would reject the offer of help. This is what got them into the whole problem in the first place. If they start literally laying the foundation for the temple with these people, they are are non-literally laying a poor foundation because they are introducing the pluralistic, syncretistic, religious worship that is the thing that got them in exile in the first place. So they do not accept the offer to help. And that begins what turns into years and years and years of conflict and opposition these people live some of them are samaritans did jesus and people in jesus day have any conflict do jews have conflict with samaritans they conflict all the time with samaritans that hadn't happened like 10 years ago there was a, a big thing that we're now we're at odds we got centuries of history here that's rooted in Things like this. And so the Bible tells us, uh, the Bible tells us in verse four of chapter four, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So, okay, you're not going to let us help. We are going to be a thorn in your side, and we won't play fair. We're going to bribe people to slow this down. We're going to intimidate you to slow this down. And the bottom line is, they are a continual thorn in their side, spanning the reign of two Persian kings. I've got a little bit more explaining to do in this chapter, because as we continue our reading into this chapter we're gonna see that the author here is going to give us a major case of whiplash. He's going to t- talk about events that span a much broader time than we might at fir- first recognize. Let me show you what I mean by that if you're there with us in chapter four. He's already said in verse five, this opposition begins in the reign of Cyrus. Remember, Cyrus is the guy that lets him come home. It continues into the reign of Darius. Uh, then verse six says, in the reign of Ahasuerus, that's another name for Xerxes, who's the king during Esther. So just interesting to see how all this stuff fits together. But he says, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Then in verse seven It says, in the days of Artaxerxes. Well, that's a king that follows the king before him. So here we are moving along. Okay, we've got the the temple foundations built. All right, there's conflict. They're bribing people. They're trying to stop us. And then the author here just kind of trips forward a century, (laughs) it would kind of be like if we were talking about events from the presidency of Warren G. Harding, and then we're like, so anyway, about the Biden administration. I mean, that's the, that's the amount of time we're talking about. We're talking about a huge stretch of time. And there's a letter here, beginning in verse 7, from the days of Artaxerxes. And this letter is written against the people who are trying to rebuild but we have been talking about people who are trying to build the foundations of the temple from the reigns of Cyrus and Darius, and this letter comes all the way from the reign of Artaxerxes. What in the world are you doing to us as we read this, and how does this fit together? Well, there's something important for us to remember as we think through things like this. One, an author writing on this subject by the name of Jim Hamilton reminds us that the biblical authors. The ancient Hebrews authors are often writing with different purposes and expectations than we have. When we read a book like this, we often expect it to follow a strict chronological history because that's what we're used to. It's at these times where we need to remember, though, that Ezra Nehemiah was not written to be simply a history book. It is historically accurate, I showed you things a couple weeks ago about the, the, the different ways that the biblical account of this time period meshes with all kinds of documents and things that we have from that time period. So time period, it is historical, but these books were not given to us simply to tell us stuff that happened in chronological order. There's a purpose behind this stuff. And basically, to boil it down as, as simply as I, as I can... Ezra and Nehemiah is put together in such a way that we're talking about the opposition that God's people experience as they're building the walls the first time it starts. The author then says that we've gone through this, this is nothing nothing new, it's happened over and over and over again, and by the way, here's a letter that was written from the reign of Artaxerxes trying to accomplish the same purposes, trying to stop them from the rebuilding project. This has been going on for years and years and years. So that's what's going on, and that's why we get a letter from a much later time that's an example of the kind of letters that were written throughout this whole period that were meant to frustrate God's people as they're trying to undertake the rebuilding project. Well, this letter from Artaxerxes' time uh, is is an example for us, and I'll just give you a taste of the letter. You can read the whole thing on your own time. But verse 13 of Ezra 4 says this, Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls refinished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. So the letter-writing campaign is meant to play on existing fears in the Persian Empire. One One of the huge problems that you have if you... Are in charge of an empire not that i would know but one of the huge problems you have as uh, if you're in charge of an empire is keeping the thing together because you've conquered all kinds of people from all over and they're not super happy about it so they're going to rebel at any chance they get and so what these these letter writings campaign they're constantly sending back saying hey listen If you let this happen, if you let them rebuild their temple, what are they going to do next? They're going to rebuild their city. And if they rebuild their city, what are they going to do next? They're going to rebuild their walls. And all of a sudden, they're going to say, you know what? We don't need you anymore. And they're going to stop paying their taxes. And you are going to feel it in your bank account, O king. You better nip this thing in the bud right now. Well, the Bible tells us Artaxerxes is alarmed. And so in verses 17 to 22 of chapter four, he issues a cease and desist order. And the people of the land in that day excitedly rush to stop the work, the Bible says, by force and by power. Now, we're gonna get whiplash one more time. Sorry to do this to you, but it's not me. So, they go by force and by power in verse 23 to stop the rebuilding project during Artaxerxes' day from which this letter came. But now the book of Ezra is gonna go back in the very last verse and it's gonna jump all the way back to the situation we, situation we were originally dealing with under the reigns of Cyrus and Darius and says, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, King Of Persia, you understand there what's what's going on? Their purpose is is to explain something thematically, not to give a strict chronology of everything that's going on. But they think they thought that they were out of traffic. Finally, the foundations of the temple had been laid; the altar was rebuilt we're moving forward, brake lights. The people had just sung, we saw in chapter three, the people had just sung that God was good and his steadfast love endured forever. Now, they were encountering a setback. But does that setback Make that song any less true. The main truth that I want us to consider this morning is this in both successes and setbacks, God is good. And His steadfast love endures forever Now the first one is obvious in successes it's very easy for us to affirm that God is good and his steadfast love is enduring forever because I'm feeling the love I'm feeling the blessings I'm on the road trip We just stopped at Bucky's. We got all the snacks we want. The windows are down. The music is up. We're singing. We're moving. We're having a great time. It's easy in those times to easily sing that God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. But can we sing that song when we see the brake lights ahead? I want to draw a couple of conclusions from this principle that I hope will be encouraging to you this morning. The first one is this. Number one, setbacks never stop the good plans of our loving God for his people. Setbacks never stop the good plans of our loving God for his people. Let me unpack what I mean by that for you. Let's think for a few moments about all the setbacks to God's plan that we see as we read the Bible. And I could give lots of them, but let me give you a couple of examples. Joseph. Joseph, just living his life, being the youngest kid, dad's favorite. And his brothers are like, we should kill him. <laughs> no. If we kill him, we won't make any money. Let's sell him. So he is sold by his brothers into slavery. And as if being sold into slavery wasn't bad enough, when he becomes a slave, he is accused of sexual assault. And he's not given a jury trial with a jury of his peers, he's simply thrown in prison. And it ain't comfy jail. It's rough there. And he meets a person in prison who's maybe going to be his way out. And that person promises to look after him and call back, but that doesn't happen. And so Joseph languishes in prison for years and years and years. And then finally, finally, in God's providence, he's brought out of prison. And he's eventually elevated to becoming the number two person in Egypt. And sometimes because that story is compressed for us and because we haven't actually gone through all those experiences, we might be tempted to think that, that becoming number two in Egypt just waves a magic wand over the trauma of all those other years. Like Joseph, like, like Joseph was standing up and saying, look at me now. Now I'm good. The guy was sold into slavery He spent years and years in jail. He's been separated from his family and everything he knows and loves. What does he say at the end of his life? Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. You know it. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Listen to this. The saving of many lives. Now there's all kinds of interesting things about that statement, but I just want you to think about if that statement came out of your mouth or my mouth, it would be, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Look at me now. I could have you killed if I felt like it. He could. He had that kind of power. He could have had his brothers killed and he could have said, you meant it for evil, but look at me now. I'm number two. I can do anything I want. What he actually says is, You meant it for evil, God meant it for good, the saving of many lives. Who are those many lives? His brothers. Who started this whole process? You see, Joseph knows that God made a promise to a family, and God made a promise that that family would become a nation. And God made a promise that that nation would be used to bring forth the Messiah to save his people from their sins. The people in this day, living under the thumb of the Persian Empire, they're experiencing setbacks. And every time they get around the corner, it seems like another one is there. I mean, this wasn't like a, let's take a month to sort this whole thing out, and then we'll get the building project started. It ends up taking 16 years to get that temple built. Yet these setbacks never stopped the good plan of their loving God. The cross sure seemed like a setback, didn't it? Finally, after all these years, the, the promised Messiah has come. And then, when he heals people and forgives people and does miracles and does all kinds of wonderful things, he gets killed for it. And God the Father isn't up in heaven saying, Ah, guys, give me a minute. I can make this work. I promise. The crucifixion was part of the plan. The setback had been part of the plan the whole time. It was a part of God of a loving God's good plan to rescue us from our sins. When Jesus departed from this earth, he told us he was coming back. That was two thousand years ago. And we've had a lot of setbacks. Scripture passages like these are given so that to remind us that what appear to be setbacks to God's plans in our eyes ultimately contribute to the very working out of that plan. God uses every single piece. There are no rogue pieces in that puzzle setbacks never stop the good plans of our loving God for his people. Secondly, I want us to see that setbacks never stop the good plans of our loving God for you. Now, you may stop and say, hey, (laughs) you just tried to sneak in the same point with a different word, (laughs) Are you running low on time this week and thought if I change one word, they won't notice? (laughs) I know that seems like a repeat of the previous point, but what I'm trying to do here is in the previous point, I've tried to zoom out and look at the whole timeline of human history and what God is doing from beginning to end and say, there have been things that appeared to be setbacks over and over again that God has used all of those things to accomplish. plans, and to show his goodness and his steadfast love. But now, I want us to zoom back in, and I want you to zoom all the way into yourself. And I want you to consider the fact that setbacks never stop the good plans of your loving God for you personally. What are the situations in your life where everything was going just fine? And boom, everything ground to a halt. You were cruising down the highway, singing to the radio with the windows down and saw brake lights. What is the thing that's got you sidelined right now? That thing that happened, that you you feel like ever since that happened, we haven't been moving. It's true. There are times in our lives when life's highway is a lot more like a parking lot. One of the worst things that I have to do as a preacher is tell people to do things that I have a hard time doing. (laughs) But these stories like these are in the Scriptures to be guiding lights along the way for us. We just saw in our series in Romans 8 that the Bible makes a bold, audacious promise. Do you remember what that bold, audacious promise is? God works all things together for good for those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. And that old song is true. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. if you're stalled out right now, if life feels a lot more like stop and go or maybe just totally on the side of the road, it's in these times that you need to be reminded of this truth. God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We often try to read our circumstances like tea leaves. This has happened. God must have forgotten about me, or he must be focused on Christians who are a lot better at being Christians than me, or he's distracted, or he's got better things to do, or all the millions of reasons that we come up with because I'm experiencing the setback. And it's scripture passages like These that remind us that whether you are experiencing successes or setbacks, God never turns his good face away from you. And he has not stopped loving you. And he will prove it to you. You may not see it now, but he will show you. He comes through. Every single time. Don't ask me. Just look at example after example after example. If you're here with us this morning, maybe there's somebody here and you are not a Christian, you're not exactly sure what it means to be a Christian. Maybe you're trying to figure the whole churchy thing out. Maybe the thing that brought you here this morning is the setback. Maybe the very thing that brought you to come to this service, to this church on Halloween is the difficulty that you're faced and you're looking somewhere to get some kind of answer. Well, I got good news for you but it starts with something that might be hard to hear. We want God to take a magic wand and make the traffic jam go away. But the truth of the matter is God doesn't always wave that magic wand over our circumstances and and change all of those things. We've got examples of him doing that and doing it miraculously, but God doesn't promise us Every traffic jam is immediately going to be thinned out so that you're on your way. God doesn't promise to change all the circumstances of your life. your life, But he does promise something that's even better than that. He promises to change you. The Bible says this in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness, those are the two key concepts from our song today, God's goodness and his loving kindness, his steadfast love. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, If you have wandered in here this morning wondering if God loves you, then you need look no further than the demonstration of his love in the person of his son. That is a demonstration. Jesus is the demonstration of God's kindness and goodness and love being demonstrated to you. And he has demonstrated that love in giving his son to offer himself as a sacrifice because of your sins. How are, are we saved? How do we experience this change? How, how does God change us? Well, it doesn't come through your efforts. It doesn't come through your own works of righteousness. It comes simply and only by faith. Faith is trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died and rose so that you could be forgiven of your sins so that you could begin the process of being made whole and made new. He gives you hope for the future by giving you his son, Jesus. And you, if you put your trust in Jesus, have a a future filled with hope in spite of the difficulty and the despair of this life. You can receive Jesus this morning by crying out from your heart to God's in repentance and trust. And he will give you a hope and a future that is secure, that you can build on, just like the foundation these exiles laid in the chapters of Scripture we looked at today. Let's pray. Lord, for the people who are here today sitting in traffic, I pray that you would help them to reaffirm, to believe again that even when we can't see good and when we can't see your face, to be reminded that you are unalterably good, that you cannot be anything but good, and that your steadfast love endures forever. If there's someone here this morning who does not know Christ, who has been brought here by the difficulty of their circumstances, I pray that they would reach out in faith to you in this moment that you would begin the process of making all things in their life new. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.